Today's sermon text is Ephesians three fourteen through 21. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 977. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades. Will you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. How's your prayer life going? That's a question that if you've been a Christian for a while, maybe you've been asked that as a pastor. I've been asked that. I have asked that of a lot of people. And occasionally I'll hear people say it's going well. But that's probably like the, the least common response to that question. Uh, you know, you, for those of you who have discipleship groups or accountability partners or whatever you want to call it, I can ask about how reading the Bible is going, how a discipleship is, and there's frequently, like, it, things are going well. I'm just basking in the glory of God's Word. It's just hard sometimes to feel like prayer life is going with that. To feel that we are just crushing it in our spiritual life. Maybe you feel like you're, you can pray throughout the day, you know, like, be constant in prayer, we're told in, in Romans. Maybe you're good at that, so every little thing that comes up, you can turn your mind to the Lord and ask Him, but, but you just struggle to sit down and pray consistently for a long period of time or pray for big things, or maybe vice versa. You can sit down and you can just like focus and hone in, but then like throughout the day, you get to the end of it and you're like, did I think about God any other time than my morning quiet time? Maybe it's the things that we pray about and just say, uh, thank you for food, Help my kids sleep through the night. Amen, young moms. Uh, give us grace. Help us this to go well. But we just kind of think, I'm just struggling. And I ask that question not as one who is just nailing it myself. And if I'm, I'm honest, what I, my, my bent is to know things, to want to say, I, I want to grow. I want to, I want to study a passage. I love doing that. I love kind of taking new things and learning. And I can wrongly think that prayer is just like time that could be spent doing that. So prayer just kind of gets bumped down the, the line of importance. But 
here at the closing of the first half of Ephesians. I've been struck this week and encouraged in my own prayer life that Paul, instead of like going to the next kind of thing, the ethical matters of the church, which we'll spend time looking at, or what church life should look like with this group of Jews and Gentiles coming together and being reconciled in God. How now do you live that that out practically in the church? Before Paul just kind of runs into that, he pauses. So here at the last half of Ephesians 3, and verses 14 through 21, there's really not much new material. I'm not going to be saying things that you've not heard for the past several weeks. Paul is not giving a lot of new material. What he is doing is he's saying, all of this stuff, this stuff in the head, I want it to land on you and in your hearts and to shape you more into the image of Christ. This prayer is one that we would do well to know and emulate in our own lives and in our own church. And so the the main point of our passage this morning is this. God is able. God is able to powerfully provide the strength that we need for his glory. God is able to powerfully provide the strength that we need for his glory. And we'll, we'll kind of walk through the text. It breaks down again, just kind of three sections here. In verses 14 through 15, we'll, we'll look at God. The God who powerfully provides. And just stop and look at the God that we bow before. And then we say that he's able, he's able to strengthen us. So that's verses 16 through 19. We'll spend a bulk of our time just looking at what Paul is praying for. How Paul is praying for strength to do these things, to put these things into action. And then in verses 19 through 20, we see that all of this is done for the glory that God deserves. That he wants to see come to him through his church and through his son. Um, you, you who have heard me preach like the past several months, you know there's like a rhythm you all know. Here's the main point. Here's kind of the outline. And I love to tell you kind of what I've been praying for you throughout the week. And this has been the easiest week to tell you what I've been praying for. I've been praying this for you, brothers and sisters in Christ. I've just been praying over and over that God would, by his spirit, strengthen you to know his power and to know more and more and more of his love that he has for you. I want you to know that through this text and by his spirit. So let's begin. Let's turn to verse 14 and look first at the God that we bow before. Okay, the God we bow before. Paul begins this little section in verse 14 for this reason. And like any good Bible student, we want to say for what reason? What is the this he's talking to? Talking about, and part of the answer to that it comes from what David preached last week. He, uh, it, when you preach after somebody and somebody says, "We'll talk about that next week," you better pick it up. So this is this is one of those things. Thank you, David. Uh, Paul in in chapter three, you can look back up in verse twelve. Paul is talking about Jews and Gentiles and his place in proclaiming the word, and this is what he says: "In Christ, in whom, so that's Christ, in verse twelve, we have boldness and access." With confidence through our faith in him. So Paul has already said it. Through kind of the end of his argument. We have access to this God. And now he's just going to put this into practice. So because we have this. Here he's going to pray. But this for this reason also kind of drives our mind back. To the first verse of chapter 3. Where Paul began this chapter for this reason. The exact same thing. And uh, if you're like me. Peter already mentioned this in our prayer. Martin Luther said you know, his mind wanders. So he writes a book. My mind wanders. He writes a book. Paul's mind kind of wanders a little bit. For this reason. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. On behalf of your Gent- you Gentiles. And then there's this dash. And like the next 12 verses. He's like oh yeah Gentiles. That's a good one. I'm going to talk about that. And that's what, that's what uh, David talked about last week. 
But really, this, this for this reason here is pointing our minds back to all of what Paul has said. Paul is praying here because of the truths that he has told us in verse, in chapters 1 through 3. He's been talking for three chapters to the readers. He's been talking to you and I about God. And then at the very end, he actually flips that around. He says, I'm, I now want to talk to God about you. And place this in there. Look at verse 14. We'll read, read these couple of verses. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul bows his knee here for a couple of reasons. You, it seems pretty obvious that you bow, perhaps sometimes in prayer, and that's what's going to happen in the rest of this passage. So Paul is bowing in prayer, but he could have very easily just said, for this reason, I, I pray. For this reason, I ask these things for you. But what, what it's, why bow? Why bow his knee? Some of you maybe uh, are big into the royal family. There was a new king crowned this weekend. But from now on, people approach King Charles. What they do is they bow. It's an act of, of honor. Uh, for some, it's an act of worship. For Paul here, he's bowing the knee because this is an act of worship. He's praying, but this prayer is born out of a heart that is overwhelmed and overflowing with worship before God. And here's what I don't want us to miss. Here's the thing that I want you to see in what Paul is doing, even in these first two verses. Our view of God determines the way we approach him. Okay, our view of God determines the way we approach him. Okay, so look back in Ephesians. This is your chance to catch up with us before we go next week to chapter 4 and look at all these ethical commands. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, just a page or two in your Bible. I just want to, to again, this is, this is what Paul is praying for, who he is praying to and why he is led to pray. Just look at a few of these things that he has pointed out about the person he's praying to. Chapter 1, verse 4. Uh, Let's start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This God is perfectly holy and powerful and love, so that he set his affections on his people before you were even around. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 of chapter 1. In him we have redemption through his blood. This God is such love that he gives his son for you. Skip down to verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. This God is so good that he has given us a land, a a people. He's given us himself. Verse 13. God has sealed you as his beloved with the Holy Spirit. Verse 19. God has immeasurably great power. Look, verse 19. I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. This God has all power. He is loving to the nth degree, infinitely loving. And we see that come together in what was, uh, what we hear in Galatians 2, 5. I'm sorry, not Galatians. Ephesians 2, 5. Ephesians 2, 5. You, when you were dead, we were dead in our trespasses. But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Paul has painted for three chapters a portrait of God 
who is loving and powerful. And we see it there. God, when we were dead, through his love, made us alive. And that God is worthy of our praise. Chapter 3, verse 14, he goes back and he calls this God Father. So not only is he loving and powerful and he is like exalted so much that you have nothing to do with him and he will have really nothing to do with you. He's our Father and we approach him. In verse 15, there is this, this saying, he says that this is the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Kids, uh, there is there's a story in the Bible that... Uh, where somebody is doing some naming. You know where that is in the Bible? Where else in the Bible do we see someone naming other things? Adam, Hudson, thank you. Uh, we see that in Adam, in Genesis chapter 1. So in, in Genesis chapter 1, God tells Adam, I give you dominion, control, you're meant to be kind of the vice regent, the, the, my representative king on the earth. And one of the ways that Adam shows that he's the king is he's told to go and name all the animals. And he does that. And what we're seeing here is that God doesn't just name a few things, but everything. Every family in heaven and on earth gets their name from God. It's why we read earlier Psalm 147.4, where we're told that he names the stars. And so the things that scientists are discovering and called TS543-K, God looks at us, oh yeah, that's, you, you found Ted, or something like that. God, God names and he knows all this thing. He has dominion and perfect authority over all of creation. And his sovereignty has no bounds. And this is the God whom we are praying to. This portrait in the first, cha- first three chapters of Ephesians 3 ought to leave us breathless. And it's important because our view of God determines the way that we approach him. Paul has spent time laying this groundwork and then he is going to pray and he says, I'm going to pray because this is the God we are. And so I'll just ask you, friends, how would you say that your view of God is affecting the way that you go to him? Or maybe if you want to if you want to flip that and use this as kind of a diagnostic question, what does your approach to God say about the way that you view him? Do you find yourself coming to the Lord, your prayer life, something that is grounded in when you have the deepest, darkest needs? You come to him in a pinch, but normally he is he's not really on speed dial. It's not a part of your Christian life, something that we do. Then, then maybe, perhaps it means that our view of God is diminished and we might view him more as like a genie or something who, somebody who's coming to us just to help us in time of need, but nothing, nothing more than that. Do you avoid God altogether? Do you, do you think, you know, I need to have like a perfect day or maybe just a perfect hour? And if I, if I do that, then God might be happy to hear me. But if not, then I, I have no business going before Him. Friend, I tell you that that's, that's a view of God that's distorted. It's not what the Bible pictures for you who are in Christ. This God loves and laid down, gave His Son for you. He is not the red-faced executioner waiting for you to mess up and to strike you down. He is a loving father who sent his own son for you. We can, on the opposite side, talk to God like a buddy throughout the day, but maybe, maybe our prayers are just have no praise, no adoration, no thanksgiving, and our view of God could be one of a kind uncle, someone who's a benevolent benefactor, but he's not perfectly holy creator of the ends of the earth. 
The truths of the gospel that we have rehearsed over the past several weeks, the truths that we, uh, one of the reasons that we are singing these songs and why we are careful and choose songs that we sing that extol and lift God high is because that is shaping how we view and think of God. And the way that we view this God will determine how we approach him. We bow before the God who has loved us in Christ and who has the power to act on that. And friend, if you are here and you are not a Christian, I think the most important question, I want you to just ask yourself this today and think, what is my view of God? How am I thinking about this God? What you think of him is the most important thing that you will think today. And have you considered that perhaps your view might be mistaken, even Christian, that ours might need to be corrected? But I hope what you see in these first few chapters of this book is an honest portrayal of the God of the universe. Friends, we, we in this room who know and trust Christ, we would say that this God, he has radically affected our lives. That in his love and kindness towards us, and in his power to bring us from death to life, he has changed us. And we gladly now bow the knee before him in worship, and we want that for you more than anything today. And so if you have questions about that, if you are asking questions, if you're a kid here, and you have questions about that, or you're a teenager... If you're an adult and you've been visiting with us, we are so thankful that you're here. We want to talk to you today about what this, who this God is and how you can know him in Christ. I'd be down, I'll be down here up after the service. You can come find me or find any Christian that you came with today. We would love to talk about the God whom we bow our knee before. Not just in prayer, but in worship. And so our God is sovereign father. And Paul turns to him in worship and prayer, and we see in verse 16 the thing that Paul starts to pray about. And over and over again, the, the words that kind of come out is strength. I'm praying for strength for these Ephesians. And uh, you can kind of categorize these prayers in a few different ways, but I'm, I'm going to look at three different requests that I think Paul is making here. And first, he's saying we need God's strength to have Christ central in our lives. We need God's strength. To have Christ central in our lives. Look at verse 16 in your Bibles. He's bowing his knee and asking that according to the riches of his glory. Just another quick saying that God has the power to do this. I'm asking according to the riches of his glory that God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Okay, this is, this is not a prayer that these people would become Christians. Uh, we've read throughout the book, they're addressed as saints, they are Christians. So it's, it's not that they would become part of God's people. So what does Paul mean by asking that God would dwell in their hearts through faith? That it's not that they would receive Christ, but I think it's that Christ through the Holy Spirit would just totally occupy their inner person. That he would become more and more who they desire and he would Take up all of their inner being. Uh, you can think of this is just thinking about it maybe this way. We're approaching summer and as long as I can remember, as long as we've had kids, we've had a kiddie pool. Okay, think Walmart kind of standing up on the side of the building as you drive by in the summer. Kiddie pool that we purchased and for, for Rose, our oldest, when she was two years old or so and she was the only one in the pool, it was like a slice of summer heaven. It was the best thing she could possibly imagine, that there was a body of water in our backyard. I came home a few weeks ago, 
and Rose, who is now nine, and Luke, who is seven, and Ruth, who is four, are all in the kiddie pool. And the little slice of heaven is all of a sudden not quite so heavenly. Okay, it's still a pool, but they think we need something bigger. We need something more. I think that's what Paul is saying. He's, he's not saying there's something deficient in these Christians. You don't just need, it's not that you're lacking Christ dwelling in your hearts. But he's saying, I'm praying that you would have the strength, that God would give you the strength that he would take up more and more and more and that you would desire that more and more in the dark corners that you just say like, I want to keep holding on to this part of my life, that that thing would be obliterated. That Christ would totally occupy the central place of your heart. He wants them to have more power in Christ, more strength, and more clinging to and filling with Christ. And brothers and sisters, we need to have this spirit-driven power so that Christ might become more and more central to who we are. That we would say, it is not enough what I have now, but I just want you to take over every inch of my life. So maybe ask yourself this question, maybe even something to talk about over lunch. What or who is occupying the central place in your heart? In your inner being, who is it that sits there on the throne? It may not be a question that you ponder often, but there is someone or something who is there. And as Tim Keller said and John Calvin before him, our hearts are idle factories. They will create something. They will crank out something that will sit there. It may be yourself. It may be your job or your five, uh, your, your, uh, for the place where you put your retirement, those things. There's going to be something sitting there at the center of your heart. And our desire as God's people, those of you who are in Christ, our desire, I know that your hope is that Christ would be there. And here's what I guess I've been just struck with again this week. There's a lot of practical ways to do that. So if you came to me and said, Ryan, I, I want Christ to be central in my life. I'd, I'd probably talk to you some about reading your Bible daily, about gathering with the saints on a regular occurrence, like every Sunday morning, and maybe even more often than that. But I, I think uh, I have been struck by what Paul does here. And Paul doesn't go into the how-tos and the life hacks. Paul goes to prayer. It says the way that you get strength for Christ to do this more and more is not just by you kind of in your own strength doing these things, which is what I want. He says, pray, pray to the God who in his strength, by his spirit will consistently and can help you push out anything that is trying to get in that place in your life. That's Paul's first prayer here, that we would have God's strength to have Christ dwell in our hearts to be the central animating person of our lives. Second, we need God's strength to know Christ's unfathomable love. We need God's strength to know Christ's unfathomable love. Look at the middle of verse 17. It's praying that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This, this request really flows as an outworking of that first request, right? So if Christ is dwelling in the center of your being, if, if he is the central thing that you are dedicated to, the person who is controlling you, what's going to happen is that you will be rooted and grounded in love. 
We've already kind of seen rooted language, uh, or sorry, grounded language, so architectural language. Remember a couple of weeks ago, he talked about Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. He's the one that we're founded upon. But then he also uses here this rooted language, an agricultural term. And, and God just loves this language throughout the Bible. God loves to talk about people as people who are rooted and grounded and growing and bearing fruit. Think about Psalm chapter 1 and the contrast of a tree kind of person and a, a chaff kind of person. Right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. And then he is like a tree that is planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. There's no root, just a husk there. We are plants who are growing, and our growth is deeply impacted by the soil in which we are planted. And so, friends, again, it's worth asking, what kind of soil are you sinking your roots into? What kind of place are you growing in? If you're growing, if you're watering yourself by comparing yourself to your neighbors and saying, I, I feel like I'm doing a lot better than them. Or if you're, if you're watering and growing yourself in bitterness, even as a Christian, if you think the world is against me and you kind of bow up and feel bitter against that, that may not be growing grounded and rooted in love. Being rooted and grounded in love means that we have lives that, that look like I'm going to give up my time to go share the gospel with my neighbor. I'm going to go help this high school student who lives across town to live a life that she can uh, walk with Christ and know what it looks like to be a Christian. I'm going to give up my time to call and to, to check on people who, uh, who I'm not really related to by blood, but I call them brother and sister every Sunday and I love them so dearly that I want to give up myself. That's rooted and grounded in love. God's word tells us that the thing we feed ourselves with, the soil in which we sink our roots and draw nourishment, ought to be the love of God and Christ. And that as we put Christ as the center of our lives, we are drinking deeply to the full and be satisfied in the way he has loved us. But, but Paul does say, I want you to be rooted in love, and then he goes on to pray for more of that. <laughs> it's just not enough. It's like, I want you to have more of that. Verse 18 has this... The statement, so the ESV, it, it's, uh, it's very literal, it's good, and it's kind of dangling here. Paul asks for strength to know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of something. It doesn't say exactly what here, but uh, the, uh, the church history is full of some very creative answers, but I think he's talking about the love of Christ. That's what he talk, goes on to talk about in verse 19. That's why, again, we read earlier in our service Psalm 103. Remember what verses 11 and 12 say. For as high as the heavens are above the earth... So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. John Stott uh, said this way, It seems to me legitimate to say that the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, especially Jews and Gentiles, the theme of these chapters. That love is long enough to last for eternity. It's deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner and it's high enough to elevate him to heaven. So kids, even young kids, this is something you can know today. God's love is everlasting and so big. God's love is immeasurable. And I'm struck again that what Paul does here is not tell us to go discover that love. 
Go find that. Go search it out. No, he says we need God's strength to supernaturally open our eyes and reveal that to us, to help us comprehend the depths of his love for us in Christ. We are, we're like children who walk outside and just look up at the sky. And if I try to explain how far that star you're looking is, my kids just can't comprehend that. I I don't know that I actually comprehend that type of length. Even those of us who have tasted and known the love of God, we have merely touched the fringe of his garment. There's so much more. We have seen and known in part, but we want to know more. This is something that maybe you get a taste of in something like like marriage. So I, I have a distinct memory as a high school student of walking uh, walking out from Laura's house and looking up at the stars and thinking and even praying, God, I, I don't know if it's possible for me to love anyone more than I do right now. And then you get married, and it's not different love, but it's much deeper. And then you have kids, and you see someone pour their lives out for others, and it's even deeper still. When I read uh, many of your testimonies, as we got to several weeks ago, uh, for those of us who became Christians as children, this reflects our own testimonies in lots of ways. So uh, we know, maybe even as children, that John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that love is real. That's real. That's not defective. There's nothing wrong with that. There's, that's all good. And then as you go along, it's not that you necessarily became a Christian later. It's just that you walk through teenage years or something where you see my sin is just not dying like I want it to. But God is still gracious. He is still kind. And all of a sudden, just your understanding of God's love just expands just this much more and this much more. And then you walk with family and friends, maybe even yourself through the valley of the shadow of death And God's hand is the one that is holding you through that whole process. And you say, my comprehension of God's love has just gone, expanded even just a little bit more. That's what Paul is praying for us here. It's not a different love. It's just deeper, broader, and wider. And he wants God's strength to help us comprehend that. And brothers and sisters, the love of God in Christ is such that we will actually never reach the bottom of that. That's part of the good news of eternity. The good news is that that kind of slow expansion where you think maybe there's a limiting factor of it, the limiting factor is not that we actually fully comprehend God's love for us. We will not scratch the the bottom of the well and looking at God's love for all of eternity. His love is boundless and deep. So if you think you get, again, bored in heaven, you won't. You'll just be constantly growing more and more, understanding this kind of love. For those of you, maybe even today, who you're walking through a season where you're not really sure that you feel that kind of love. Or maybe you think that, that something is happening in your life that you're just not sure what God is doing. Why, why is this thing happening? The good news, friend, is that at the end of, I don't know the timing. I'd love for you to know today. I'd love for you to know today why you're walking through that, but we're just not told that that's going to happen. What we are told is that in the end, in his own time, in his own way, we will see that his actions towards his people have been love all the way down, all the way down to the very bottom. We need God's strength to help us comprehend more and more. Of his love for us in Christ. And finally, and what is something of a summary request? We need God's strength to make us fully spiritually mature. 
This is this the last little bit of verse 19. Paul prays, I'm praying that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's a short phrase, but one theologian said this little prayer, no prayer has ever been framed that has uttered a bolder request. You should want to be filled to the brim as a picture of God, filled with God's own fullness, which leads to our conformity to his son. We actually, we should be praying this prayer for our lives individually. I want my life to look more and more like the life of Christ, to be filled with the fullness of God. I would say this is a prayer, this is written again, not just to one Christian in Ephesus, but to a church in Ephesus. So I'd say this is something that we ought to desire for our life together as a church, that we should desire to have the aroma of Christ. So as people come in contact with us, we would welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. And we would continue to love sacrificially as he is loved and glorify the Father as his Son has done perfectly. Brothers and sisters, I, um, I've been deeply convicted this week about the seeming sparseness of my own prayer life. It's not just that I haven't spent time in prayer, but frequently my, my prayer life are, is consumed with the things of this earth and it neglects the magnitude of eternal things. And that's, that's not to disparage or discourage praying for the things that are happening in your life, which are very serious and real. Jesus himself tells us to seek the Lord for daily bread. But, but in thinking through these things that Paul is praying for his, the church in Ephesus, I've, I've just wondered if at times if I've been satisfied with bread and I've not longed for the eternal feast that's held out before us. If everything I've been looking at is just the stuff right here in front of me, if I've not thought of these type things, if I've been so fixated on my day to day that I've not lifted my eyes to ask God, help me, help us by your spirit and your strength to know Christ's love more, to know his power more. And I've wondered what it would look like if my prayer life was characterized more and more by this kind of prayer. What it would look like if our prayers as a church was filled with this, that we were so consumed with knowing and loving God that we devoted our time and our efforts and our energies, our families, our money to this kind of cause. How would, how would praying this kind of prayer as a regular pattern of my life change me? How would praying these kinds of prayers as a regular pattern change our church? And, and beyond that, what would it look like if God answered these prayers? What if God actually decided to help us know his love just a little bit more and a little bit more and that Christ became more and more central to our life together as a church? It's my life. And so I do have, I have questions on uh, your note sheet. If you didn't get a note sheet, I'd encourage you maybe even grab one at the welcome desk on the way out today. I, I just want you, especially if you're a member of Philadelphia Baptist Church, in light of these Requests. I want to ask you to do a little bit of homework, and I'm sorry. I know like Excelsior students just got out of school this past week, so I'm just this is your only homework assignment. If you just finished, but I want you to think about and maybe spend some time praying about and answering these two questions: What would my life look like if I prayed these kinds of prayers, and then God answered it? What would my life look like? And then maybe spend some time praying and dreaming. What, what would our church look like if we were praying these kinds of prayers and God answered these kinds of prayers? I trust there are some things that, that wouldn't change it. I, I want to tell you, I hope you, uh, I don't want you to walk away thinking discouragement. Uh, I, I've, uh, again, if you, if you're new here, I've been the pastor here for, uh, a grand total, I think, of nine weeks. 
So I still have a lot of people who walk up to me and say, how's it going at Philadelphia? And my answer is, I'm so encouraged by the grace that I see. The evidence I see of the love of God dwelling amongst his people at Philadelphia Baptist Church. My goal is not to discourage you in any way. But I do think that there are things in my, my own life, in our life of a church, where we want to say, we, we want this just more and more. Until the end of our days, these are prayers that we will pray. That we will surrender more of our lives, more of our church's life together, to have Christ dwell in the midst of us. That we would constantly be asking that we would be filled with the love of God. And we can just imagine together what that would look like to be filled with the brim of God's love and power. And how that would inevitably pour out into our neighbors. Or to change our our habits or to propel us to the nations. So I hope that even this week, just as you're spending time in the Word, you can look back at these texts and spend some time praying these prayers for yourself and for our church. And just think, what what is it that I'm praying for? What would God do? What would this church in my life look like if God answered these kinds of prayers? And some of those changes might seem improbable or even impossible. You may be thinking about some of them even right now and they may, they may scare you. You may think that's something that I really don't want to do. But brothers and sisters, these kinds of prayers, just, just know they're, they're ones that I think Jesus delights in answering. If we're praying that his glory would be made known, if we're praying that we would grow in love and knowledge of him, these kinds of prayers bring joy for God to answer and say yes. And he does all of this not because we're really great. There is no like, if you go in your prayer closet this week, he's going to answer. If you're praying in public, sorry. It's not that. He answers these prayers for his own glory's sake. That's verses 20 through 21 and the glory that God deserves. Look down at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is really just turning back to where we began, a view of God that is high and exalted. God who is love and God who has power. And these prayers are not small prayers. We are praying to the living God of the world to supernaturally give us strength to know and love more than we do right now. But these prayers, Paul is saying, are not too much. Maybe you, you sometimes you worry about going to God with certain things because you're just curious. Like, I don't, this feels like grandiose. Like, I know I can't accomplish this thing. And maybe, maybe there's the times I say, I, I wonder if God can answer this prayer. And Paul here is just telling us, not the case. That's not the case. Paul says, according verse 16, it's why he prayed according to the riches of his glory. And why here he just stacks word after word after word about God's limitless ability to answer his prayer, the prayers of his people. Right? God is able to do what he asks. But not just that, he can do more than we ask. And even more than that, the text says he can do far more abundantly than all that we ask. Or even think. Paul doesn't want you, and I don't want you to leave just wondering, is God able to answer your prayer? Our prayers for this thing. The lack is not in God's power. It never has been and it never will. This God, our God, is limitless in his power and perfections. And because God intends to be glorified in you, in his church, I do, I know, 
that he is delighted to hear these prayers, to answer these kind of prayers. I will warn you, this, these, these prayers, these are not the prayers for an easy life. These are not prayers for a comfortable life. Or even for a safe life. But these are, these are prayers that we are praying because we want to live a life that counts for God's name and for his sake. And we know that he is able to answer. We're not praying just for the approval of man. We're longing to see Christ face to face and to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the rest of your master. And on that day, when we see him, we will say, man, we were really great people. We will sing what we will get to sing together here in just a moment. All of the glory, all of the glory belongs to Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we ask in the name of your Son, who you gave as a sacrifice for us, your people, we ask that you would help us to know your great strength and power. Lord, I pray for us here who know and trust you that you would dwell in our hearts through faith, that you would more and more occupy our thoughts and our attention that every nook and cranny of our lives, we would turn over to you. Lord, give us your strength to comprehend the limitless love that you have shown your people in Christ. We thank you. And we pray that all of this, that you would conform us more into the image of Christ. Not so that we would make a great name for ourselves, or for this church. But that we would do that so that Christ may have a great name among the nations. And we pray this in his name. Amen.